Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you are listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober Edition. Oh! <laughs> it's alive! <laughs> uh, it's the month where we do scary movies. Ooh. And today, we're talking about filmmaker Wes Craven. Best known for Get a Load of This Roll Call of Films, Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, Scream 4, Vampire in Brooklyn, (laughs) Swamp Thing, (laughs) My Soul to Take, Angela the Fireworks Woman, (laughs) let's not forget Shocker, let's not forget It Happened in Hollywood. (laughs) Okay, so you're just going to go with the pornos. (laughs) That's right, his pornos. Because Wes Craven is a director that he actually started a little bit later in life than most people do. The story goes that... He uh, was an English professor. One of his students asked him for help to make a film, and he got so involved with it that he grabbed his family and went, we're moving to New York, and I'm going to make movies. And I'm probably going to make pornography before I make any feature films. He seems to have become a bit of a like hippie long hair type, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he got involved uh, with whatever came his way. He worked as a taxi driver for a long time. And the story goes that he became friends with Sean Cunningham, the... Uh, producer of Last House on the Left and who would go on to be the director of Friday the 13th. Before we get into Last House on the Left, I'd like to ask you, what is your opinion of Wes Craven? I like Wes Craven a lot. I think that he has a very particular look to his films and things that he likes. I will defend his auteurist bona fides and I have people backing me up because on the Last House on the Left Blu-ray, there's actually a little documentary called The Craven Touch, where a bunch of people try to argue his worth as an auteur okay because you know that i was gonna come at you yeah you're gonna come at he's me. not an auteur that he's a journeyman he's a journeyman mm-hmm. and that i think that just looking at his films there's enough thematic content and things that obsess him per every picture that it's difficult for me to agree with you if you say oh he's just showing up and doing the best job that he can i think he's made a number of you know his filmography speaks for itself mm-hmm. he changed or at least significantly influenced the trajectory of the horror film three times in his career Mm -hmm. with last house on the left nightmare on elm street and scream uh he's made many very skillful films he's made a number of uh shockingly uh misguided films and watching some of his films again this week i was struck by the craft of them Mm -hmm. he's a good technical director there are worse directors who I have more fondness for because I feel the weird passion of their work. Mm-hmm. And I feel a certain icy remove with Wes Craven. I feel that when you approach Craven's work, uh, beyond the fact that he's a filmmaker who made it for himself, which, as we've talked about before, that's something that we love. Someone that has no opportunities and has to start at the bottom making pornography and working his way up to doing studio pictures. Mm-hmm. And it's also his obsession with the unconscious. Everybody that worked with some says that Wes is a guy he is able to articulate what he sees in his dreams and the unexplainable in a way that like connects with people on a level that it's very difficult for other people to do and when you see him interviewed he's clearly the most kind of intellectual or Mm -hmm. the most ostentatiously intellectual of the masters of horror he's always talking about ancient myths Mm -hmm. and very analytical like he's approaching it from Uh, a position where he's broken every part down for it to work as a whole for him. And he's considering how his films kind of fit into this broader continuum of like the history of horror and how horror has dealt with 
society's primal fears or those sorts of things. I mean, I didn't mention that, like, one of the building blocks of who Wes Craven is as a filmmaker has to come from his upbringing, where he was famously not allowed to watch any movies Ah, until essentially he got into college. Yeah, real Paul Schrader type. And that, like, Last House on the Left, people, when it first came out or analyzing it, say it's an articulation of that idea of what does it look like when someone who hasn't experienced this through their lives has to express this kind of concept of violence against people. Sean Cunningham, the producer of the film, said that The Last House on the Left actually came out of them seeing a Western, which had a massive body count, and the kind of numbing effect it had on them. And uh, he and Wes talked about how could they make a movie where the violence was more visceral? Now, this sounds like something someone would say after the film came out and they've had decades to ponder it. Because when you look at Last House on the Left, you could easily go just, well, they wanted to make something exploitative, That would shock people, so it would bring audiences into the cinema. That's funny, Justin, because I thought it was a perfect analogy for the Vietnam War. (laughs) The hippie culture being taken down from within. Last House on the Left is one of those movies like Night of the Living Dead, where it clearly wasn't made with any conscious agenda, but because it was made at that time by these people, the troubles that were brewing in society sort of found their way into the movie Mm -hmm. in in oblique ways. Because the artist is dead. It's a subconscious (laughs) up on screen. For people that don't know what Last House on the Left is, it's a story of two women who uh, go on a trip and are quickly captured by some ne'er-do-wells and are brutally beaten uh, raped and then murdered. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, spoiler alert for a film that rips off Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Springs, uh, those evildoers end up at the uh, one of the woman's parents' house. The parents find out and then they brutally murder the bad guys. So it's a very important cautionary tale about why you should never leave your house. <laughs> I don't think that's what it is. And also why all the hippies are Charles Manson, literally. <laughs> you think that's what it is? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's clearly what it is. <laughs> Even though that the hippies, um, spearheaded by David Hess, are shown to be city folk at the beginning of the movie. So they're some of those bad hippies, I guess. Do you find yourself uh, almost sympathizing with the hippies when they make their way to the parents' house? Uh, like the, the parents have this... Uh, you know, I don't know what words I'm looking for, like patriarchal um, system in place. Yeah, like conservative looking house. And there are these, you know, young hippies there. Well, what's interesting is that like, Last House on the Left can be read in direct conjunction with The Hills Have Eyes, Mm -hmm. which has another of the same idea of like, look at this nuclear family and how they're destroyed and they become as mean as the monsters that are attacking them. Because Last House on the Left ends brutally with the parents very systematically setting traps to kill these bad guys. Like, it's not something that's done in a moment of passion. It's something that's done to get the most pain out of the people that cause them pain. One thing that I thought was interesting to learn about Last House on the Left was Craven and Cunningham considered doing it as a porn film. Really? As as a roughie. That's what I heard on the Mm. commentary track on the Arrow Blu-ray. Great uh, commentary track. And... Such a film would not have been totally uncommon. There were movies at this time, like Sex Wish is one, Hard Gore, mm-hmm. you know, like porn roughies with a lot of sexual assault in them. 
and you know the movie had the movie been made that way it would have been totally forgotten i think i mean like the ruffy is a genre in of itself at that time so this would have like you said just fallen into that but it's definitely the artistry that craven brings to it i mean as threadbare as that may be that like the impact is so strong this was a film for a long time that i was like well i don't want to watch this Mm. because like what is it famous for women being raped and murdered Mm. like it doesn't interest me at all well mainstream audiences i don't think had seen something like this Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean maybe pornographic audiences had seen something like this but not mainstream audiences Uh, and you know when people talk about the vietnam war in relation to this movie a lot of it is the fact that you know the the violence and the upsetting imagery of that war was a daily presence on people's tvs and so the people who made this movie were angry about violence angry about the violence they were seeing and they wanted to show violence in a way that was totally de-glamorized but i have to point out that i think that one of the reasons that this film is so popular and one of the reasons that it's derided by first-time viewers is the tonal shifts between the violence and the comedy cops because these aren't scenes that are living separate from each other they're living intercut with each other like when the women are being assaulted it then cuts like almost like a cliffhanger to these two bumbling cops over like banjo music before cutting back to the violence and all that does is just underline how violent this is Mm. because if it had just been violence throughout i think the audience would have gotten numb to it at a Mm. certain point kind of like a funny games kind of way that's interesting you say that because i had never before you said that Mm. been able to reconcile the comedy scenes most people can't yeah yeah but it's i think something that i don't know if craven did this on purpose but the way it's edited almost feels like it is like it's a breather but it's a breather before someone sticks your head back underwater. Yeah. And because you're drowning, you're like, ah, it's worse because you know what it feels like. Most mainstream critics when this movie was released, with the unlikely and conspicuous exception of Roger Ebert, who liked it, but most critics accused this movie of wallowing in sensationalism and being misogynistic mm-hmm. in, its, in its depiction of the rape and murder of these women. I mean, I think it's pretty clear when you watch it Uh, You know, these people, these critics at the time wouldn't have seen a million interviews with Wes Craven Mm. where they would have seen what a kind of smart and articulate man he is. Uh, So so they wouldn't have known who made it. But I think when you watch it, giving it the benefit of the doubt, it's pretty clear that your sympathies are with the women. Yeah, I think that artistically it's very clear Mm -hmm. in the way that it's presenting the story, whether it even be the murder of the last girl in the film where she like is brutally assaulted and there's just a moment of stillness where everyone is standing around and she just gets up and she just walks into the water and then one of them just shoots her in the back of the head and she just kind of like falls over there's no like exploitative enjoyment there i feel but i feel like a lot of critics might have looked at that and said well, even if it isn't exploitative, what's the point of putting it on screen? Mm -hmm. What's the point of putting anything on screen? (laughs) But like, I don't think this is a film that anyone could watch and be like, oh yeah, this is getting my rocks off. Just of the way that it's structured. Well, you could watch something by Michael Finley and be like, oh yeah, if you're one of those like people who are into that. So I find Michael Finley, so Michael Finley is nowhere near as good a filmmaker as Wes Craven is. I 
am slightly more fascinated by him at times. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to qualify that statement yeah. heavily because when I see Craven interviewed and I see him talk about a movie like Last House on the Left, you can kind of see the calculation. It's like it's like with Findlay, it's coming from this this primal place within him, and with Craven, you can see him making a movie like this for sort of careerist reasons. Now that may not be a fair criticism to lob at it. Uh, but it, I think it's just one reason why Last House on the Left doesn't plant itself in my heart. <laughs> What's <laughs> you know? funny about that statement is that I can understand what you mean. You just like that primal scream versus the person writing it down and planning it the night before. Yeah. But I feel that Craven is someone that those feelings he's putting down on paper are things that he's thought about a lot and things that he has emotional resonance with. It's not specifically just like, ooh, I think this will get a reaction. Mm-hmm. It's things that actually mean something to him, whether it be the way that Bunuel influenced him and he talks about that a lot in like Nightmare uh, on Elm Street or other kind of filmmakers like Ingmar Bergman. Mm -hmm. And while they may be kind of reflection of those movies, they're filtered through his perceptions. Yeah, maybe I'm giving it a bit of a bad faith reading. Yeah, I think that it may just be because Wes Craven became that kind of studio filmmaker Mm -hmm. who made four screams. So when you look at that filmography, Mm -hmm. you automatically go, look at this hack who just went and did this. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, as opposed to being someone who would have worked in the margins. But I mean, like, just from the fact that he started so low on the totem pole making pornography. Yeah. And then he (laughs) ended in making, like, the biggest horror films ever. Like, I think that there's value in that. And it does make him interesting. Yeah. Uh, So we skipped A Nightmare on Elm Street because we're going to talk about it on some other episode in the near future good movie but we both watched dream warriors is the best though yeah it is <laughs> um the uh chuck russell one 100 percent uh we did watch people under the stairs which is a rush craven picture that came out in 1991 sort of in the fallow period between the big slasher boom of the 80s and the scream era of the 90s mm-hmm. when horror movies weren't that popular although people under the stairs was a modest success at the box office this movie has admirers not only for its peculiar mix of tones Mm, it's love it uh, i love it too but also for its social commentary which i think it's you know perhaps possible to overstate the social commentary of the film but it's there i mean there's a man that looks exactly like ronald reagan chasing (laughs) after a bunch of black people in his house yeah they actually gave him like makeup to make him look like more like Ronald Reagan. And he's also a slumlord yes. who, who, you know, all the black neighbors are now kind of revolting against. And he's a leather daddy as well. Yeah. Like, I, So, so l- let me rephrase that. Like, it's not possible to overstate the social mm-hmm. commentary, but it's like, there aren't a lot of hidden depths there. No. But I'm not complaining. Yeah, it's right on the surface. Yeah. And I think that, like, a movie like this... Is Craven just going wild with everything he loves to do? Uh-huh. Man, House of Traps, just yeah. traps all over the place. It's one long chase sequence. He gets to play with the gothic and the in-your-face grotesque at the same time. Yeah, it's very fun. And actually, you know, even though I say that the social commentary is right on the surface, most critics at the time missed it. No, they didn't care. Yeah. And I, I have to ask you, though, like, what is the difference between Craven and Romero when he's doing the same thing? Because Craven for a while made movies that, had like a lot of black characters and theme, whether it be Serpent on the Rainbow or A People Under the Stairs or Vampire in Brooklyn. Now, either that's something that he fell into or something that actually interested him. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's something that interested him. Sure. When you start with Serpent on the Rainbow, that is a little bit more troublesome because it has Bill Pullman as like the white 
kind of cipher hero in the center of it. Sure. But everything around that is all kind of centered on customs and things that you would associate with black iconography. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he made Serpent and the Rainbow, People on the Stairs, and Vampire in Brooklyn, like two films is an accident, three films is a trend, right? Yeah. And the fact that he uh, it went that way, it's obvious that like these things interested him in a way that I wouldn't consider like exploitative. Because to make a film in 1991 mm-hmm. that mostly stars like a uh, black child and Ving Rhames, like that's not commercial. So he would have had to fight for that. Mm-hmm. So like, what would you say is the difference between uh, him and George Romero? Cause you would automatically say George Romero has like auteur themes, whether they be like putting like the black experience at the forefront accidentally in Night of the Living Dead or when it was conscious and stuff like Dawn of the Dead, um, Day of the Day Dead, of the Dead well. and Land of the Dead. I mean, we're two white guys talking about like white filmmakers doing these things. Oh, well, but... I think maybe part of the difference in perception between Craven and Romero. First of all, Craven had a much better funded career. Yes, than he did. Romero did. And Romero was completely independent most of his career. Yeah. But that being said, Romero was a very self-conscious social commentator beginning with Dawn of the Dead. And he had these zombie movies mm-hmm. that were marketed in such a way that it's like, okay, this movie deals with this theme this movie deals with that theme like marketing him as if he were almost as some people have called him like the horror stanley kramer (laughs) so like (laughs) it's almost as if wes craven to get i mean no one wants to be called the blank stanley kramer but if you eliminated films from his filmography then you could like more consciously have that idea because like deadly friend is there and you're like wait what how does this fit into his kind of journey as an auteur well yeah i mean the fact is that wes craven's career is also very uneven Mm -hmm. so there's some stuff in there that waters it down yeah it's like um two crappers for one masterpiece i think is how it like evens out yeah uh we watched vampire in brooklyn which came in sort of a commercial fallow period for both him and its writer slash star edward murphy very close to his breakout hit the nutty professor that's right and also, a year away from Scream. Supposedly, Eddie Murphy said he had to make Vampire in Brooklyn to make The Nutty Professor, which sounds ridiculous to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, the only reason it exists is so that Eddie Murphy can wear a cape and look cool. And this is a film that was written by his brother, Charles Murphy, mm-hmm. and it was given to uh, two other screenwriters who completely rewrote it, and then was handed to Wes Craven to direct this big-budget Eddie Murphy vehicle that has a predominantly black cast. Mm-hmm. There's white gangsters that escaped from John Landis's innocent blood. But other than that, like mostly it's focused on Eddie Murphy and Angela Bassett. Eddie Murphy plays an African vampire who has been sort of chased out of his hometown and makes his way over to Brooklyn where he has to mate, which I think is unique to this particular screen vampire before the moon grows full or he'll die because they're the only two vampires left do vampires reproduce i don't know the mythology of this movie is very convoluted because eddie murphy as uh the ultimate vampire can make dogs explode he can fly he can shapeshift yeah you know the crucifix will of course make him steam up and, and, and... <laughs> in a comedic fashion yeah so this is i guess a comedy horror film yes but both are 
fighting head to head throughout. It's not funny. And in fact, this is in that period when I think Eddie Murphy was not really playing ball with the idea of being a comedian. Yeah, the uh, Axel Foley has grown up period of his life. He mostly just plays it straight and tries to look very cool. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, I think. I think he's okay. I think that the biggest issue is the movie around him has no idea what it wants to be. For the first... 15 minutes, I was with it. Like, a boat crashes into a dock. Eddie Murphy makes a dog explode with his, I guess, laser beam eyes. Uh, He turns someone into a ghoul, which leads to some very painful uh, comedy where um, one of the characters is losing a hand, an Mm -hmm. eye at one point. But at the same time, the story with him and Angela Bassett is played completely straight, Mm -hmm. which is difficult to kind of parse because... Eddie Murphy, when he's not in scenes with her, is so over the top, it's difficult to take him seriously. He's mostly pretty mellow, except for one or two, like, wacky comic moments, which Mm. look like they were just contractually obligated. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's an Eddie Murphy, so, yeah, okay, you have to, you can be cool for most of the movie, but you have to put on a fat suit once. Yes. So he transforms into a Preacher. preacher who goes off on this long and not very funny sermon about how evil is actually good. So supposedly, uh, Because I read an oral history of A Vampire in Brooklyn. Yes, every film now has an oral history somewhere on the internet. That that scene had to be completely rewritten because Eddie Murphy would not get out of his trailer because he thought the speech in its original form was too sacrilegious. Wow. And he had to rewrite it so it wouldn't offend his own faith. Eddie Murphy also shows up in another role as an Italian gangster. In whiteface. A a street-level thug. And I didn't realize it was him at first. I realized instantly and I like looked. Like he was talking for a while and I thought, wow, where did they get this really stereotypical Italian thug? <laughs> and then I started to think, oh, wait a minute, is it? Uh, I liked that performance. This reminds me that you should go check out one of the funniest thing Eddie Murphy has ever done for SNL, which is the White Like Me Very uh, good. segment. Very uh, good. So good. Yeah. But as we've been saying throughout, it's a film that doesn't work. Like, it's not something I would recommend. It's something I didn't find too painful. This is a film that the commercial would show endlessly on like those like um viewers choice pay-per-view exactly (laughs) and i remember uh eddie murphy being shot and then rising up out of the fog and just uh brushing off the bullets what the movie has and i'll give this to craven is fog fog (laughs) which i love and just a lot of vampire kitsch yes so So that's fun yeah. yeah but it also suffers from obviously test screenings and producers going this doesn't make any sense eddie murphy 30 minutes in starts narrating every 10 minutes and you're like what the hell's going on yeah. where he's explaining everything that's going on i think the most successful sequences are the one where angela bassett are, is having kind of psychotronic freakouts, <laughs> and there's like weird stuff happening and she's screaming and running down the street like those segments pulled out of the film around it they work and it has that west craven kind of physical energy that all of his films have but as an entirety nah skip it But there were greener pastures ahead for Wes Craven because the following year, he would revolutionize the horror film. He may have been an old man, but he had a hot young cast of Skeet Ulrich's and uh, (laughs) Nev Campbell's and uh, the guy who played Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Matthew Lillard, you shut your mouth. (laughs) Yes, sorry, his name escaped me. You didn't even mention Courtney Cox, David Arquette, all the classics. This is where the Cox-Arquette romance began. (laughs) 
every time they were on screen. It just sizzled. I was looking at them on screen and I was like, do you think they've had sex yet? Do you think they've had sex yet in real life? Do you think he has that mustache for real? I hope so. She's like, play your Detective Dewey character in bed. The movie, of course, is Scream. Good movie. You know, it is pretty good, but there's an aspect of the movie that I think has not aged that well, and it's the aspect that was most novel at the time, which uh, is that the wink- Yeah, the winking postmodern shit. The screenplay by Kevin Williamson, which is in the mold of that kind of like Tar- Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino yeah. Kevin Smith, you know, hyper self-aware, uh, you know, hyper verbose. What's interesting about Scream is that like, Craven had done a much more interesting idea with New Nightmare, even though I don't think it's executed as well as Scream, Mm -hmm. where New Nightmare being about the idea that there's like a demon that kind of influenced the making of of Nightmare on Elm Street, and now Wes Craven and the star of the first one, Heather Longenkamp, have to deal with this demon that is taking the form of Freddy Krueger, something that they've only seen in the movies. Yeah, Craven is clearly interested in the role that the horror film plays in society, Mm -hmm. uh, how it it keeps our, I guess, primal fears at Bay or it uh, satiates them in some way. But Scream is just like a good slasher. Like that's all it is. And I think that the idea that it was a revolution and that it kind of influenced everything that came after, and it did, is what I think people will be disappointed by if they watch it again, as opposed to going, oh, this is just fun. Yeah. And a lot of the reviews of the time, you know, Siskel and Ebert's review or whatever, were so big on praising the idea that, oh, these are characters who know they're in a horror movie and they know all the tropes and the cliches of a horror movie well like i mean obviously they didn't see rolf konefsky's there's nothing out there or the classic spoof student bodies (laughs) but like who cares like just because they mention that the cliche is going to happen doesn't make the cliche any more or less effective and really it just kind of congratulates the audience for knowing that it's a cliche i think that yeah like the first scream is very rarely undercutting the cliche Mm -hmm. and going in a different direction with it like you said it's just like this is what it is now let's watch it play out in the way that you expect it to yeah it's like a, a mystery science theater track over itself but you know it had the great incel uh beginning where the guy has to fake geek girl uh, trivia drew barrymore and then punishes her for not knowing the true horror facts yeah but it's just it's a very effective slasher movie that opening scene with drew barrymore you know the last 20 minutes of the movie i think are just an incredible slow build yes um but and it also has that like physicality that you see in all west craven films even something like vampire in brooklyn like there's more, like, table smashing in Wes Craven films than any other horror director you will see. He kind of loves the idea of this ghost face killer being hit and being knocked to the ground. Suspense being generated not by, oh, this guy I can't stop, but by a guy that, oh, he is human, he can be stopped. You hear him groan and get thrown against stuff, but at the end, he still catches you and kills you. It's a good mystery, too, mm-hmm. because you never know who it's going to be. Yes. It, it could be anyone, and... There's a sense that anybody could also die and, you know, even the hero could possibly die and there won't be a character in the movie that doesn't leave without significant injuries. <laughs> yes. So, like, there always feel like there are stakes. Yeah, and I mean, that's very important when it comes to slasher film and obviously Wes Craven understands that. Now, 
the other three Scream films, Scream 2's fine. It's fine. It suffers from that, like, the ending leaked while they were shooting, and they had to rewrite it all on set because they wanted to, I guess, shock people <laughs> that, like, who the real killers are. Interesting. So, wait, what was the original ending? I don't remember. It was, like, different killers. Okay. And they just rewrote. I think it was either more or less or something like that. And it was influenced just by it leaking on probably something like Ain't It Cool News, I feel. <laughs> and the third one is bad. But it does feature a important cinema club favorite, Jay and Silent Bob, <laughs> showing up in a cameo. <laughs> Everybody loves the monkey. Wes Craven appearing also in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Now, I think the last 10 years of Wes Craven's career are a little sad. They are. They're the worst ending a director can ever have, which is people not trusting him to do anything. Well, it begins with music from the heart, which I haven't seen. Nope. Um, we considered it and we went, life is too short. <laughs> <laughs> That's his Meryl Streep violin drama, his only non-horror feature film, which got Meryl Streep one of her many Academy Award nominations. Huh, it did. So they, there you go. A Wes Craven movie got an Oscar nomination. And then like, give us more screams. <laughs> but well, the presence of that movie on his filmography is kind of like... Oh yeah, he wanted to do other things and he couldn't. No, and yeah. that's that's you can't look at music from the heart and not feel a little sad that it was this road that he couldn't take. I remember for seemingly ten years he was shooting this dumb werewolf film, Cursed. Mm-hmm. He had to reshoot it like three or four times because fucking Miramax wouldn't let it go and they just wouldn't release it. And then it was released and people are like, this is bad, who cares? Well, it was barely released. It yeah. got a very half-hearted release. Uh, and it's too bad because he is Wes Craven. Yeah, and you should be able to trust him. Give him the goddamn benefit of the doubt. Give us another scream, Wes. He he did Red Eye, which is a good two base hit, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. I remember being disappointed when I saw it in theaters, but I wouldn't call it bad. Solid B movie. Mm-hmm. I saw My Soul to Take, the last film that he made. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, second last film that he made. I forgot Scream 4. I always think that's the last one, but Scream 4 was the last one picture that he made. One final retreat. <laughs> Kevin Williams in his back, baby. No more Ethan Kruger. We got the dream team back together. So yeah, um, My Soul to Take, you watched it. I saw it at the time and I've totally forgotten it. Now, the good thing about My Soul to Take is that it is bananas. This is not a director showing up and going, I'm going to make a slasher film for the kids. Hopefully it'll make some money and then I can do my other like Meryl Streep musical drama <laughs> again. This is a guy who it's written solely by him. And it's the story of... A man with seven personalities is a murderer, and on the night that he is finally taken down by the police and killed, his soul goes into the bodies of seven babies that are all born at the same time. (laughs) And now these seven babies are each being killed one by one, and one of them is absorbing their souls and gaining their abilities and skills. I'm making it sound way more interesting than it actually is. But it's Wes Craven just striking for the fences, writing dialogue for teenagers that I don't know if he wanted it to sound real because it sounds like Heather's because it's like so stylized to the point like, uh, wake up and smell the Starbucks. Like- <laughs> okay, that reminds me uh, that Scream 2 has an absolutely cringeworthy scene where it's a bunch of teenagers talking about sequels. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't where, remember. Where they're like, oh, d- dude, no sequel is better than the original. Um, uh, what about aliens? Uh, uh, no way, man. Ridley Scott's a genius. Um, 
Guys, everyone, uh, The Godfather 2. Wes Craven is sitting uh, behind the monitor, Dan Silent Bob style, just counting money. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, action! <laughs> it's It just makes me cringe so hard. But yeah, I, my soul to take. Yeah, it's just weird. Like, if someone wants to see a weird movie, I would definitely recommend it. Like, there's a whole scene where um, a character shows up in a condor costume in their class and then vomits and shits all over the bully. Like, it's a movie written by a guy who gives no fucks. And it was also a film that was, again, completely rewritten and reshot on him mm. right before it was released. Sad. It's just like, Wes Craven, what does someone have to do to be able to, you know, make the movies you want to make? Obviously, once you reach a certain age, it doesn't matter what you did. You're an old man, and you don't know anything. We want the young bucks to come in. That's and right. it's like, fuck you! Like, the fact that George Romero had to struggle as well at the end of his life, making, like, found footage zombie movies is what ridiculous. You, what would you rather have? A guy like John Carpenter who just says, fuck it, and then spends, <laughs> spends his last 20 years making music? Yeah. Or Wes Craven, who, who fades, fades away, you know? <laughs> just... yeah, that's a tough choice. I mean, I did see the last film John Carpenter made, The Ward, so yeah. he can stay at home. Yeah, we don't need any more of those. Or uh, pro-life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Masters of Horror short. Yeah. I mean, Wes Craven, when he passed away, I think it was a shock to a lot of people because it felt like, ah, he just had one more in him. Like, was he going to twist, like, horror itself on its head one more time and unfortunately nah it was just like you said a slow fade away but his work speaks for itself mm-hmm. and despite my completely irrational misgivings <laughs> that i expressed uh any guy who changes horror film three times i mean no one else has in that way like yeah. george romero hasn't john carpenter really hasn't i'm thinking of the other masters of horror uh, william there. lustig hasn't <laughs> yeah exactly hey whoa uh, speaking of that Moving on to our Patreon topic, we did an episode on William Lustig's Maniac, the Joe Spinell classic that is recently uh, being released in 4K. Finally, we've all been waiting for it. He's a maniac, maniac Maniac on the floor. So we talk about that movie, we talk about uh, William Lustig's career, and uh, shocker, we may not like the movie, but... (laughs) You're going to have to listen to find out. We might like it. Yeah, who knows? Well, you will know if you listen. It's $5 a month at patreon.com slash important cinema club. And you get four episodes every month and our entire back catalog, which is like 80 plus episodes at this point. How can you live your life without hearing me and Will talk about the Japanese guinea pig films, (laughs) which are really gross? Don't make our suffering be for naught. It's Shocktober on the Patreon too, by the way. Yeah, exactly. It's Shocktober all over the place. Before we get into our letters segment, uh, we're going to give a shout out to a listener because I think he's earned it. He's <laughs> at Film Theory 102 on Twitter. Sorry, I don't know his real name. Okay, uh, preamble to this. A few weeks ago, I'd totally forgotten this, but a few weeks ago on the podcast, apparently I said in passing. It's... Not in passing, very emphatically. Okay, well, to me, it was in passing. <laughs> if somebody tattoos our logo on their body or our faces on their body they get to pick an episode topic and And guess what i never dreamed (laughs) that somebody would but uh at film theory 102 did yes he did big logo he added a little shine to our glasses that was it was good craftsmanship it it was very good craftsmanship now he's pointed out he actually owns a tattoo shop so this was very easy uh but just to see that image and to stare at it and go is this real? 
And yes, it is very real. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a big moment in a celebrity's life <laughs> to have their faces tattooed on someone's body. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much. And that means no more tattoos, guys. You won't get to pick an episode if you do it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the terms of the contest <laughs> yeah. were that it was the first one. But Film Theory 102, if you'd like to choose an episode topic. I, he, choose I think, an episode I topic. I think you've earned it. Yep. Get in touch. Let us know. So uh, as per usual, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Stephen Vag, And he goes, hey, guys, love the show. Was wondering if there was possible episode in the career and films of Bob Clark. Growing up a film buff in Australia in the 80s, the main time you heard of Canadian film industry was either Wayne and Schuster's or You Can't <laughs> Do That on Television, broadcast on Australian TV in the afternoons, or the films of Bob Clark, as opposed to Canadians who worked in Hollywood films who seemed to be everywhere. I.G. Reitman, Cameron, Jewison. Apologies if you already dealt with him in the podcast. Just couldn't remember it. Keep up the great work. It's a fantastic show, Stephen. P.S. I particularly like the Emily Guestins and would love to hear more of her on the show. Well, I live with Emily, so I'm sure we could have her back on in the near future. And as far as Bob Clark goes, yeah, I'm sure we could probably do a Patreon episode on him. He's a bad director. No, he's not. He's I don't not. think he is. I do not think he is. Okay. Like, if you look at stuff like Black Christmas classic grabbing a penis through the uh, peephole. I know, you're gonna say a Christmas story. Uh, I'm not a big fan of a Christmas story. Really, I'm not either, actually. But he has two or three movies. Children shouldn't play with dead things, baby geniuses. Okay, baby geniuses. This Uh, is what I'm talking about. The Sherlock Holmes films that he made that's really good. Okay. Uh, There's a bunch more that he's made, but mostly he's known for Black Christmas. The funny thing about uh, Bob Clark is, not Canadian. Really? He actually, yeah, he moved from somewhere in the United States and he considered himself a Canadian because after making stuff like Black Christmas, he just kind of stayed here and continued to make movies. You know which one of his I really like is She-Man. No, well, I don't know what that is. I think it was his first film. It was an early transgender-themed exploitation film. Which really? Something Weird Video put out. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty funny. But, I mean, he's mostly known for A Christmas Story, which uh, TBS would play 24 hours a day. And I don't know. I don't have much of an affinity for that film. Neither do I. But even if you don't like it that much, you've probably seen it 20 times. So many times. Yeah. You know, a good Christmas uh, Patreon episode would be... Black Christmas and a Christmas story. Well, why don't we just do that as our Christmas episode this year? Yep. So there you go. Your wish is our command and it will soon happen. Bob Clark Christmas is what yep. we'll call it. And maybe we can uh, do Karate Dog as well, where Chevy Chase voices the dog. <laughs> Let's actually do that, though. I think I would like to see that. Oh, and I also forget he did Dead of Night, which is a great movie about like a Vietnam vet who comes back and is a zombie. A take on like the monkey's paw tale. Mm. Last week, a letter writer asked us if we could identify a movie that uh, was set at a prom or something mm. and that, that somebody got uh, hung by the roof or something. I, I didn't know what it was. Justin didn't know what it was. But a uh, listener, Eddie Averill, tweeted at us that he thinks the movie in question is Class of 1984. So, person that asked that question in a letter, tweet us and let us know if it is true or not after watching the movie. And even if it's not, Class of 1984, great movie. Good Canadian film as well. <laughs> What's next week, Justin? Next week, we're doing your favorite actor who played the Wolfman, Dracula, 
uh, the hunchback of, I guess, the Notre Dame. So, uh, Lon Chaney Jr.? Nope. We're going to be doing Paul Nashi, the Spanish superstar. And if you're like, wait, who's Paul Nashi? It's like I said, a guy who played every monster under the sun, and he did everything. He wrote, he directed, he starred, he played multiple monsters in the same movie. He had a very prolific career. What should we watch? We're going to be watching... Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, which is a repackaging of one of his werewolf pictures that has no Frankenstein in it. <laughs> and we will also watch uh, Inquisition, which is considered one of his better films. And I don't know, the werewolf and the Yeti, the one where he fights a Yeti in the mountains, which somehow made it on the video nasty list. Okay. <laughs> so those three pictures, probably more. I mean, Dracula's Greatest Love is really fun, but I've already seen that one, so I'm not going to watch it again. I know virtually nothing about Paul Nashi. I've seen Frankenstein. No, what was it called? Uh, werewolf meets the vampire woman yes which i remember thinking was boring i feel that may be a feeling you will probably feel again watching these movies okay because you know it's a particular flavor but it's one that i'm very excited to discover uh there's a, a book by troy Howard called human beasts the films of paul nashi that it will definitely try to read cover to cover so i come informed so that's our episode next week until then my name is justin glue i'm will sloan thanks for listening boop, 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 boop. Welcome to Justin's Recommendation Corner again. And Will, as well, if you have anything to recommend. Uh, I'll think about it. <laughs> but today, I have a new book, Hot Off the Shelves, a.k.a. it was literally put up on Amazon to be self-printed and sent to your door. And it's a book called Analog Nightmares, the shot on video horror films of 1982 to 1995 by Richard Mogg, who's also a filmmaker who made a massage parlor murders. I'm not familiar with it, but uh, other people that I know are. And so this book, I just read a few pages of it uh, on the Facebook group, and I instantly fell in love. I was like, wow, this guy said that he spent seven years writing this book. No one would publish it because it's like almost 500 pages. So he did it himself. And just flipping it open right now, an interview with David the Rock Nelson. Oh, my man. <laughs> now, so we've talked about kind of like shot on video stuff before and the aesthetic that is different from anything else. Yeah. And it's one that... Over the years, I've fallen in love with. I was very dismissive at first, being like, why would I watch this movie? You know why you were? Because you were too close to it at the time. You think so? Like, we've moved far away from the era, or far enough away from the era of sort of camcorder movies <laughs> that it's now obsolete technology, and therefore we can kind of see the beauty in it more easily. Huh, because I always thought that it was because I wanted all the movies to be a particular way, and when they weren't like that, I was like, meh, not interested. There's probably something to that as well, yeah. <laughs> but now that I look at those, like, locked off... Uh, shots done by people who are not actors, mm -hmm. and it's just it's just beauty to me. It's like folk art, yeah. And so this book, and what's really surprising about this subject is that no book like has really been written about it in a comprehensive fashion. And this is the first one I can think of that really tackles it. And uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I've read about 200 pages. And it's not only a historical survey, each chapter, because it's going chronologically, uh, gives you a little bit of background on how these movies came about. It's also an encyclopedia of these films, written in a very approachable style, uh, broken up with interviews with the filmmakers who made these pictures. And like, there's a part that was written kind of as an oral history of the director of Blood Lake, almost brought me to tears reading it. Oh. Like, this is, like, the kind of stuff that not only have you not read, but shows a passion of people that, like, this was important to them. They had no money. They did it. 
they were somehow in a place where it could get out in the world, get on the video shelves in a way that it can't anymore. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's kind of been frozen in history, but kind of forgotten. And thanks to books like this, you can finally read about it. I can guarantee you that if you get this and you crack it open and flip through it, you will not know half of the movies that are um, written about here. So... I highly recommend it. That's my recommendation for this week. Analog Nightmares. You can get it on Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. Shot on video horror movies or any shot on video movies are like this wild west. It's like there has been no real attempt to like canonize them. Mm. Uh, Yeah, figure out what the canon is. So yeah, the minute you mentioned this book, I ordered it instantly. Because like it hasn't existed. And I know that this book actually beat uh, the Bleeding Skull guys who are like the go-to guys when it comes to talking about this. They're writing a book on like the 90s kind of shot on video movies because they did one that was mostly the 80s. And that book will be very fancy and published from Fantagraph Press, but probably only in 2019. And I feel that uh, it would probably complement very well this big analog nightmares book. You can never have too many. No. And I gotta say, it's very well written in a very readable style. I was worried when like someone says, I'm self-published and it's comprehensive that it was going to be like a very dry kind of plot synopses. But when you read it, you're like, oh, this is fun to read. It's only a couple of lines. So you don't skip it and go to the rest. You actually read it and laugh and then actually read the review. We are in such a golden age of books now. Like, you know, the fact that you can go to Amazon and there's a 500 page book about the history of Shapiro Glickenhouse Studios. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, so, uh, if this if this is indeed Recommendations Corner, yeah. uh, I'll say I watched a spooky Shocktober movie this week called Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> wait, wait, did you watch the theatrical or the TV cut? Uh, watch the TV cut over a while. Okay. So, yeah. not all in one go. So, did you get spooked by the ghosts in it? They are some spooky ghosts. <laughs> yeah. So, I recommend it. Very good movie. Also, Last night, went to see A Simple Favor. Good movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I like that your girlfriend is making you see movies that you wouldn't see. (laughs) Yeah, just normal people movies. And you know, thoroughly enjoyable. It's the way movies should be. Maybe I should just go see regular movies more often. Uh, Wow, a shocking turn. It's like a um, serial cliffhanger. Will, will see more normal movies? You have to tune in next week to find out.